Remember, people are black and white and paper thin. Since when did we turn on terrible writing advice? I was just gonna name drop that. <laughs> Welcome to Worldcasting, where we discuss real, made-up things. I'm your host, Dino, and today you'll be joining us as we talk about governments, economics, trades, and occupations, all of which have been themes for the World Building Magazine, the trades and occupations being our latest issue. Today joining me are Adam, BK, and Democate, if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourselves. Hello, my name's Adam. And I am vice editor-in-chief at the magazine. I just wanted to say congrats to everyone who helped put this one out. Uh, it's been a crazy year. And thank you to everyone who has supported and been a part of it. Hi, I'm BK Bass. I am the writing chair for the magazine. And I'm also an author of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Hello, I am Immaculate the editorial chair here at World Building Magazine. Just super glad to be here and happy to celebrate another year of the magazine. Glad you all could be here today. And we are essentially getting ready to celebrate the end of volume three here and begin next year's volume four, uh, which will begin with the arts. So to get us off on a great start, we will go back to the world that was in volume one with the governments issue. And we'll chat a bit about governments, what they are, why they're important to your world building, and some of the types that you can see. And maybe we'll start off with, there's a lot of different governmental forms. And they can be things like our stuffy bureaucratic federal republic that we live in here in America or in other countries around the world that are democratic republics. And they could be something completely insane, awesome. Uh, personally, my favorite form of government is the thalassocracy, which is a really weird word that essentially means the rule of the sea, which is the ship empires of old. Many nations have kind of identified as this, most famous being the Republic of Venice. Some would argue the late period Achaemenid Persian Empire and even the Britannic Empire at its height and the age of imperialism. So just going over to you guys, what are some of the more interesting forms of government you've seen in media or you've postulated yourself? I think as simple as the governmental form really is, monarchism is really interesting to me because it varies completely based on whoever the monarch is. So when you encounter one, it's going to most likely be very different than the last one you saw because the character who is in charge of everything is so different. I like it as a kind of baseline because it's really easy to explain and understand, but there's so much complexity to it 
with how it is interpreted and ran. And branching off of uh, what Adam said about monarchies, uh, you know, one of my favorite forms of government to study is feudalism. Something I think a few interesting things about that. One is the hierarchy of it, where you have you know different lords and different ranks, is really interesting. Your dukes, your barons, and earls, and also that it's tied to the economy so closely, where the feudal system is really an economic and a government system. The the way they go hand in hand, tie together, and how the military is very involved in every layer of the process is really interesting to me. I also think theocracies are really interesting, where you have a, uh, a religion actually controlling the government. It can be a really interesting thing to work in your world building. I'm going to join in on the monarchy bandwagon that Adam started. I particularly, I really like, like, I don't like it in practice, obviously, but I like the concept of the absolute monarchy that kind of also because of the kind of context, some often religious context with absolute monarchies ties into theocracies somewhat. But generally, I just like seeing governments that either rely on one or I, in world building, not like in real life. <laughs> Disclaimer. But seeing dictatorships and monarchies and oligarchies, those things where you invest the power in a silic few, I think it opens up a lot of shenanigans that's particularly helpful for, not not just helpful, but also kind of ripe for usage and narratives because you are able to focus on certain figures and kind of narrow down your spectrum. Because I think in world building, trying to really replicate and encompass, let's say, an entire democratic republic one, it's a lot of work, but two, it could suffer from lack of focus, I think, from a world-building perspective, unless it's done really well. Yeah, I want to bounce back on that and say, you know, you mentioned shenanigans. I think really, you know, if you, if you want to work shenanigans into it, bureaucracy, like the Democratic Republics, things like that, like the kind of system we have in America, is real, actually really good for that. And it depends on what kind of world you're building and what kind of story you're trying to tell. But if you wanted to get into like government corruption and, you know, different factions vying for power and things like that, where you have more people involved in the government gives you a lot more to play with there. And you can definitely range in characters with um, essentially what their organization is trying to do. I definitely, definitely love the like corporatist police state for that like bureaucratic, like espionage kind of style of story. Uh, and it's just because, like you said, it's more people are involved with the government. I think likewise for things like D&D and fantasy, having that feudal monarchical society that has this almost like theocratic bent with the sacral kingship, it, it lends itself so easily to the genres that you try to play in and with. As far as monarchic itself, it is so true, Adam, that essentially no two kings and our absolutists are the same. And there's so many different ways to play with it. Like the formula, it's so variable. And everyone loves a good evil king, like, like a 
an, an evil king to just hate on like Joffrey from Game of Thrones. And one thing to add to that as well is that, you know, even if you're not the king, you don't have all the power. You can find ways to exploit what power you do have. So, for example, I've been reading today In the Field Marshal's Shadow by Brian McClellan. It's a collection of short stories from his Powder Mage universe. And it's really cool because you never get really any glimpse at the king that's mentioned. You never really see him as benevolent or cruel or anything of the sort, but you see people around him who are kind of speaking with his voice. So you see one of the field marshals. Actually, you don't, you don't even see him. You hear about him, and you hear what his orders are, and you get kind of uh, third-hand impressions of this guy who's just close to the king, and you sort of see him exploiting what power he has because it was bestowed upon him by the king which is also really interesting because it's a monarchy and you aren't even seeing the people in charge. You're just seeing the people around him and hearing about what they do. That makes me think of uh, Warhammer 40,000. You've got the God Emperor of Mankind and, and he's basically a corpse on a chair. He doesn't actually do anything. Um, but you have this whole galactic empire this all these systems of control all based off of his authority and people speaking with his voice to enact what they want to happen yeah pretty much but it's it's the the underlings that are actually you know they're um after their own agendas uh correct me if i'm wrong i'm not, I'm not too familiar with warhammer 40k but is it essentially a theocracy but the gods actually real I mean, not to say other gods aren't, but there's divine oomph behind it that can smite and destroy planets. Oh, yeah, the, like the, the, the human faction in that universe, the leader that I mentioned, the god emperor of mankind, and they, he's the emperor, they view him as a god. And he was at one time a living person that actually like united humanity and led this crusade among the stars. Like he's basically revered as a god, but he's basically a corpse, like on a life support system, kind of. But there's other, there's like evil chaos gods that actually have whole can do stuff and demons. It's basically fantasy in space. Yeah, it's like a bureaucratic the theocracy, but the theocracy branch of it tries to vie for control with the other like militaristic branches, which kind of goes to show how you can use governmental types and split them into pieces to figure out exactly what you want to graft them into. Yeah, you've got the, the religious branch of it, the military branch, and then the technological branch. There's like three branches of the government. I can't remember the names of them right on the head. And then they're all, you know, have their own things that they're their own agendas that they're trying to apply. Yeah, and that way you can you can really play into whatever genre you're trying to write for. For example, a theocracy with a living god as the as like the leader, that's that's a government itself. 
but this time it's not just word of mouth or followers preaching scripture or what have you. There's You have a natural God that may or may not get angry if someone were taking their lands or stepping into their geopolitical boundaries, for example. So that really adds a certain dynamic. And of course, you can do that too. Like scientific megacorps forming an oligarchy in either a punk or a high sci-fi setting. So just just a lot of things you can do by leaning into the, not exactly, not just the strengths, but also kind of the hallmarks of a genre and then tying your government into it to make it almost iconic of what you're trying to do. Yeah, definitely. One thing I was thinking with monarchies and like the feudal system is you have these larger than life figures with your kings and your dukes, knights, and stuff like that. And, you know, just taking it a step further and having the monarch or, you know, whoever your supreme leader is being an actual deity, you know, having those strong characters, especially for like fiction writing, is really good if you want to focus on those government figures. Having those larger than life figures is really good. It's also an interesting way to frame like what characters you want in your story by choosing a government type. Like, um, like I kind of mentioned before, like the evil king everyone loves to hate, or like the hero king everyone cheers for. The like Adam had mentioned with the gunpowder mage trilogy. Uh, is it a trilogy still? A uh, series, and it's this post-revolution like realm, and you have a field marshal as the main character, and and then you have to realize where that fits into the government as well and how all of this kind of blends together to essentially help create the cast of characters as a tool. It's not something you have to obsess over, think every little piece about. It's just a framing device like everything else. It just helps set it up, at least in my opinion. It depends on the story. You know, if the story is about the government, then you would focus more on it. If yeah, you know, the story doesn't really involve the government, then it's just part of the part of the background and the scenery. Um, it is easy to just have the background. Yeah, I think I just want to add to that as well. Knowing what the government is like is really important, but it's not necessarily going to directly impact every story. So have that knowledge, but don't feel like you have to use it all the time, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it can just it can be part of the foundation that you're building the culture on. Or even the reason why in a narrative something happens, but you don't have to actually go into why a government is doing it. As long as it's relevant to, I'd say, the main characters, for example, or the main plot point. Yeah, for sure. And don't be afraid to experiment, especially if it is a backdrop piece. Just try and have fun with thinking something crazy up. It it can be so interesting, the pathways that will open up just by putting together a governmental form that just looks neat on paper. Personally, one of my main nations in my setting is a meritocratic autocracy where the most eligible person is voted to be the autocrat. And like that, that in the real world makes that like, that's just a good on paper. That's never going to happen in practice kind of thing. And it's so interesting to be able to play with it though, and see how the minds of the people would have to be to allow that to exist. 
And it never really impacts much in the way of story or world building outside of that place. It's just something fun to play with. And I think that that's the main point with world building with governments, unless you really want to showcase a government. Well, to not exactly counter, but kind of a contrast to your example, my setting has multiple factions that are essentially governments of themselves, but there's only maybe like, as a whole, there's only two actual countries, for example, that count as countries by our geopolitical standards. And those countries have very centralized governments. And one also happens to be a theocracy. But all the other major factions are essentially oligarchies who have control over territories but aren't solidified as nations. And in my case, the, the fact that there's so many decentralized factions or factions that are only loosely controlling territories has become a problem that my players in my D&D campaign have to deal with. Because when there's an overarching conflict, like a war against an ancient evil, where you want people to work together, it becomes a hassle to try to get all these different political factions to see eye to eye, or at least to put their well-being on a back burner compared to the well-being of an entire continent. That's an interesting point, too. You know, a lot of the government systems that we're talking about are, you know, going to be used in larger countries or, or kingdoms, at least. But you can have, you know, as small as like a city-state. And, you know, if you're just looking at like one city and all surrounding territory, yeah, it's interesting to look at that, too, and kind of think of different ways to work that out. I've got a couple of one of my worlds that are um, uh, city-states that are controlled by um, merchant councils. Basically, the economic elite run the city. And then you've also got like different tribal governments and things like that, too. You might have like nomadic tribes or not, not really organized cultures that um, don't have that centralized or like a territorial system. Or maybe, um, you know, like they are not tied to the land, they're just tied to the people. And the rule of wealth is one of the more interesting ones, I think, to play with and see. And the examples in history are are awesome to look at, like ancient Carthage and Venice. And it is something that's on a much smaller scale, I would say. Like, their world felt so vast, but to us, it's just a tiny corner of it. It's interesting to see how that has developed. Yeah, I think in Burr, like Carthage, you know, started off as just a city. It was um, actually, actually the um, article I wrote in... Um, the recent issue about mercenaries actually deals with Carthage quite a bit. And it started off as a colony that got cut off, and then it was kind of an isolated city-state, and then grew into an empire, but it still remained a oligarchy. It was still, you know, the economy ran the empire. The plutocratic oligarchy which essentially just means that the most wealthiest men with the highest net worth rule, and once it dropped, they no longer ruled. So it's, it's interesting to see something that you'd, you'd think that that's, oh, that's, that's only in cyberpunk. No, that happened in the real world. Yeah, I was thinking as you're describing this, I'm like, huh, cyberpunk fantasy. Neat. <laughs> and there's a, there's a lot of historical examples and, even modern examples where, you know, basically wealth 
runs the show. And you could get into a modern political debate about our own society, about, but it's actually really common, and it's one of the most, you know, if you wanted to create a government for the world that just makes sense, the people with the money having the power just makes sense in a lot of cases. Yeah, that should cover most of the bases for most stories, honestly. <laughs> Wealth isn't just raw gold. It's capital of any kind. It's military power, too, uh, especially back in the day. You know, and, you know, speaking of mercenaries again, if you have wealth, if you have military power, you have, uh, you can train people, you can supply them better, you can equip them better. And then that, of course, you know, you control the military, you can control whatever you want. So speaking of wealth, we'll segue into our next topic on economics. And essentially, what is that wealth that you can control? What is the basis of, you know, resource and control which allowed people like governments to to rule and people within governments to gain leverage over their own government so essentially we briefly discussed on carthage and the idea of mercenaries and how that's using capital in a military sense to secure control what other forms of essentially resource and control are there to you guys for example tradespeople, merchants, and just resource warring in general. How do you think it plays into world building? I mean, all wars are fought over resources in some form. And so much of our storytelling involves conflict such as a war or the building to it. So in a very simplistic form, Resources are hugely important. You don't want your protagonists going to fight your antagonists over nothing at all. Uh, you need motivation. You need something to something that one party needs that the other has, and it could be as simple as wood or clay or something of those natures where there's a massive shortage and they can't purchase any so you know we've got to fight for it or figure out an alternative no it, it makes sense you know, commodities are the are the basis of any economy that's pretty much all i'm trying to say is that there are things which get overlooked i feel and really you know, figuring out what resources are available or not available to a group dictates so much and uh, really can drive a plot. And, and if you want to look at like the most basic of, of commodities and what most historic economies were built around is actually food supply. Actual agriculture formed the basis of a lot of historical economies. Yeah, essentially, resources, they're, uh, they're the cause, means, and results for most conflict. They're the cause, because you need a reason to pretty much engage someone to go to war, or else it's going to seem petty. 
and people will be will be petty when they fight, for example, in wars. But most of the time, people look for a reason to engage in some sort of conflict, whether it's like outright aggression via wars, or you can have economic conflicts where you're trying to choke out trade routes or control a market. But to actually fight those conflicts, you usually need resources so that you can support your efforts. And the results are you acquiring more resources and so on and so forth. Whether it's you or you as in a faction or a nerf faction. I was going with the somewhere. I was going somewhere with that. <laughs> um, I, I want to bounce off of that idea that um, all conflicts are based off resources. And just say on the other side of the court, coin, there are conflicts that are based off of ideology ideological differences um mm -hmm. resources might play definitely play a role in the logistics of it um but there can definitely be an ideological reason to go to war um but yeah i would say you know it, more often than not you know resources are definitely a cause i think if you have enough money to throw at something you can just silence someone else's ideology but that's just me well, if they're strong enough about their ideology, you can't buy them into changing their mind. Um, then you get something like the Crusades. Yeah, you don't have to buy them into changing their mind. You can buy someone else to change their mind for them by any means necessary. And we're back to mercenaries. <laughs> Always back to mercenaries. Mercenary Pope won. Then you get mercenaries on Crusades. We do speak of resources as like food and money, but another facet to that I think as well is kind of the results of that, getting more into translating currency or capital into, let's say, services, commodities, technology, for example. Because there is a certain point in our history where you don't win wars by just throwing more people at it. You win wars by developing better ways to get rid of the people on the other side or some other weapon or progression or development that will help you perhaps win a war bloodlessly doesn't always have to be fighting necessarily wasn't it desert storm that was like one of the shortest operations or maybe i don't know if it classifies as a war in history just because you know when the u.s went in they had air superiority and better technology better resources basically and it was over incredibly fast yeah that it technically was a police action would be the actual definition of it and uh yeah th there was almost no fighting at all there. I think we mostly hit technological targets like radar systems so they couldn't shoot surface air missiles. I think there might have been one tank battle, if I'm remembering correctly, um, with the Republican Guard. And then after that, I just hightailed it out of, out of Kuwait. Um, we, I don't think we actually crossed over into Iraqi territory in that. Um, if we did, it was only like a couple of miles just to chase them out of Kuwait, but that was over really fast. 
Yeah, I guess I guess that kind of in a way falls into what Amakanate's talking about. You know, the U.S. just threw a whole bunch of resources at a problem, and it was far more than the opponents could really muster. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, so we basically threw missiles at their uh, their radar system, so they couldn't throw missiles back at us, and they were like, "Well, yeah." It just became a one sided engagement at that point. So it was attacking the uh, the military infrastructure instead of the military manpower. And what did what did the U.S. gain from that? Resources, I think. Yeah, well, we were defending an ally, and of course, the ally was a trade partner, and we got oil from Kuwait and all that good stuff. So yeah, it was defending you know a uh, trade partner. That tank battle is both relevant to the idea of throwing money at a problem and technology and how technological advancements through a wealthier economy matter because essentially as i recall a sandstorm hit and the republican guard of iraq's sensors like their their scanners and radars weren't as advanced their optics weren't as advanced as the us's and so we essentially could see them and they couldn't see us and they were devastated so sometimes the nation that can just increase its tech because its economy is stronger and it has more power in the science sector that can matter and that could be the same in a fantasy setting where the more magically advanced more magical researched faction could eke out a victory over someone who's considered an equal or greater opponent. Yeah, you could even look at, um, you know, looking at fantasy, even without putting magic into it. Just looking at uh, technologies back then, and something as simple as iron or steel versus bronze. Uh, if you have an army equipped with all bronze weapons and an army equipped with all steel weapons, um, the army with the steel is going to win because the bronze weapons are going to be able to hold up against them. Yeah, the using that example, the bronze faction might win a couple of battles, but they're not going to win the war. Yeah, their equipment's just not going to hold up. Especially like if their armor is bronze, the steel will go right through it. So like steel arrowheads will punch right through like a bronze breastplate. So they're... Yeah, it might not be like a sudden victory, but it will definitely, you know, it, if it's a war of attrition, they would definitely lose. They at least have the capability of winning um, engagements um, by just having superior technology. That is most definitely true. Yeah. Yeah, tactics and numbers would definitely come into it, familiarity with terrain. There's so many other factors. Um, but that would be a huge technological advantage to a uh, ancient culture. Fully agree. And talking about the economics of the ancient world, it even was a big part of the world back in the Bronze Age. Uh, the late Bronze Age, right before the collapse, you had an interconnected world that, like that's globalized almost, similar to ours today, where you only had two degrees separating most of the actual nations in the twin fertile crescents of the Nile and the uh, Tigris-Euphrates. And there are quite a few nations there, and they all kind of knew of each other. And so economics also plays in with trade 
spreading the word of other places and how those places can then rely on each other. Yeah, and you know that and segueing back into our relationship with Kuwait and our involvement in Desert Storm, that those trade agreements, um, you know, those create allies, those create you know relationships. I, I was mulling over the what you brought up regarding technological aspects of it. And I I just can't help but think that um. It's it's a process to get to that technological superiority. If we look at the in our in our history in real life, the nations that have managed to make those strides, either in weaponry, for example, firearms. I think the citation is that they were first developed in China. Yeah. Yes, and then eventually. Europeans got a hold of them, and it kept being cited as the reason why, during the age of colonialism, of imperialism, why there was certain European superiority because they had technological advancement. And why does this society happen to invent these things or to find them, to make use of this technology or get to that point, whereas others are not? And I think that comes down to uh, kind of recycling back to that need, the need for advancement, and that cycles back to both needing and having resources from that economic standpoint um, of control over resources. Yeah, it's like you're not going to be able to make steel if you don't have access to iron and tin. You just wouldn't be able to do it. Have a good source of burnable carbon, such as uh, coke. Uh, not the drug, the actual uh, substance. The, the fuel. The fuel. There we go. <laughs> but um, solid. You couldn't make bronze without tin either, and it was copper and tin. And the people who controlled tin in the Bronze Age were some of the strongest nations, like the Hittites of uh, modern-day Turkey. They were sitting on one of the largest tin deposits in the world. And tin is incredibly rare on the lithosphere, the surface layer of the earth. It's in several deposits, but they're always huge deposits. So essentially most of the tin, almost all of it in fact, in the Bronze Age flowed through the Hittites. And they were thus warlike and powerful because they had to always defend it. They seized it and then had to fight everyone else off. Did that give them an economic advantage in trading those resources with other cultures? Uh, as far as can be told, yes, it gave them an edge. But the fear of cutting off the tin supply always meant essentially war would be declared. I believe in one of the Ugaritic letters from Ramses to the Hittite king, he essentially threatened that. Like, we will be brothers if the tin flows, but if the tin does not, then we shall fight. And that's something else I was thinking of, you know, we're talking about uh, a culture developing a technology. You know, once they develop that, that's something you're bringing us back to the topic of economics that we were discussing. You know, do they decide to use that as an economic advantage and not just a military advantage? A long, long time back, when Spain was still this big imperialist power, they found a lot of platinum in Ecuador. They ended up dumping all of that platinum 
into the ocean because people were using platinum to counterfeit money. And this was before platinum had a big, big use for it. So that was like its prime use at the time. It feels like probably one of the biggest, not one of the biggest, but a really big economic uh, oopsie, considering how important and valuable platinum would be in like probably a few hundred years after that point. That'd be something interesting to play with, too. You could have a culture that has one of these valuable resources or useful resources and not have the scientific know-how to be aware of what it could be used for and be sitting on it. And you can kind of write that into a story, kind of turn a trope on its head that, you know, this nation has all this gold or this iron and they don't know what to do with it and they don't care. Um, in that feeds right into trade and in that if you have a resource and you need to exploit it, you need to find a market to sell it in. Trade is the lifeblood of economics. It's one of the main reasons it exists. And that's internal trade in a nation and then international trade on a world stage, even if it is just to say neighbors. And that that's a whole key part of economics and trying to focus on that is very difficult. I know that one of the best examples is the anime Spice and Wolf for talking about medieval economics. Um, but it does tend to be a subject that most people fall asleep at. Um, so I would like to instead focus on the people that trade relies on. That's merchants, caravaneers, artisans, craftsmen, the trades and occupations based around all that we've talked today about. To get us started on this, how about we just kind of talk about using trades to showcase world building, specifically interesting real-life trades and trades that could be specific to genres and settings. This could be like the Valyrian steelsmiths of Game of Thrones to a artificial limb creator in a cyberpunk setting or even a steampunk setting with clockwork limbs. What do you guys think? I did always like Valyrian Steel. It kind of became a meme at some point because it was this rare and uh, amazing thing, but then somehow every noble house in Westeros had their own Valyrian Steel bauble. <laughs> um, so I think that's kind of a case in both using it well and also poorly because Martin did place so much Valyrian steel around the world. So even though the people who created it were gone and it was this highly valuable resource, this very sought after thing by nobles, it still didn't feel that special as a reader or as a viewer of the show. So I, I think really it's, it's both a success story and a cautionary tale in terms of creating these valuable resources. Yeah. As far as what uh, Diana was asking, as far as the uh, occupations, I think it's a good way to really create a flavor for a story where depending on, you know, what kind of genre and what kind of setting you're working in, like with like a cyberpunk setting, if you've got, you know, you know, these underground hackers and stuff like that, that's, you know, more 
prominent than it might be in another culture. Um, or like if you've got professional dragon slayers in a uh, fantasy world, you know, you can really emphasize what's important to a culture by what professions are either prominent or more respected in a culture. That's true. That reminds me as well. Um, someone here within our uh, Discord server, we were talking with them a couple days ago, I think, and he's working on this world that's kind of uh, inspired by the Polynesian areas. And there's a profession of divers within his world that are diving into the waters to look for these pearls, which are magical in nature. And the seas are so dangerous and the pearls so valuable that being a diver is hugely respected which I like a lot because it's taking this very common term, diver. At first glance, you think of it as like maybe someone's diving for fun, or maybe they're uh, at most maybe a underwater you know, nature photographer or something, I don't know. But then he's taken that very basic concept and kind of turned it on its head, and it's now this hugely dangerous highly valuable profession which is seeking out magical items i just think that's super cool yeah that's a great example because right there just with that he you're tying in your culture your geography your economy and your magic system yeah for sure yeah professions are uh Occupations, professions, however you might want to call it, are a really great way of characterizing a setting in a way that it's um, that can be actively followed. Just because, and this is my opinion, just because most readers and most people will have kind of this lens, this familiarity with working, with a job, that that you as a creator, as a writer, as a world builder, can make certain presumptions about professions already. Oh, that they're getting paid for this. They're probably doing it for so-and-so time during so-and-so hours. They might be seasonal. There might be a permanent job. It's kind of some background things that we, because we live it in our real lives, don't really think about as us having that knowledge embedded that then you as a creator can kind of pull on to make something seem familiar, but also unique as per each setting. And that's why in Adam's example, he gave that diver example that is probably common in the world, but is in that world and also common in our world, yet unique enough within the context that becomes memorable. But to kind of also build up on that, it's also possible to have more common professions like a craftsman, like a smith, a letter worker, that's both common in our world, but can still be nicely iconic, but relatable in a setting, just because we are knowledgeable of it. And it is so important, kind of central to this idea of 
and harken back to technological advancement to creating, to making use of resources that we can kind of connect to it because it makes sense. I think connecting it back to your setting, um, such as with the example of the divers, is really one of the best parts about it and the whole point of really doing it. Yeah, I think he did a great job with the with the divers. And I I do agree as well that it's something, you know, what do people do in your world is maybe not the most exciting thing to work on, but it's super important to describe what is happening in that world. So, like, if the economy is good, let's say, then there's probably a lot of trade going on. People are uh, living comfortably, and or at least generally more comfortably, and you know, kind of going about their days, not too much on their minds. You know, that they're worried about. Uh, if there is, it's probably more less impactful things. And then if the economy isn't as good, then people are going to be looking for jobs. Maybe unemployment is higher. What jobs are available is going to be very important to know as well. So it's, it's definitely one of those items to consider within its own scape as well as how it is impacted by or impacts pieces of the world outside of the work and from a fiction writing standpoint it's really important to base things around people and tying people to the world and the professions are really good way to do that and that diving example is a good way where you can solve the show don't tell problem instead of telling the reader that there's these magic pearls in the world or just sticking them in there you're actually showing you know somebody doing an activity that's active it's interesting it's exploring the environment and then it's introducing that element and using professions as a way of giving a character in a story and action to perform that introduces a new element of your world is a good way to weave world building into your narrative without info dumping. I agree with BK it, and the whole um, profession is telling a lot about your world. And I kind of want to tie that in with what Adam said, because he brought up a very good notion of prosperity versus not. Um, a nation, a society that is prosperous will have this level of comfort that allows certain professions to exist. For example, um, artists, just harking back to the Renaissance, artists, writers, pretty much anyone that wasn't really doing a direct, kind of like a direct trade that results in crafting an item that might be considered essential either to everyday life or in some cases military purposes they had this opportunity to pursue such professions because there wasn't 
excess of resources. There was a surplus. There was wealth. There was people willing to spend money on them. But when you kind of pull back on how much the average person has, some of those professions will cease to exist. And there will be a focus on crafting, on trade. Maybe medicine, if if the level of technology is supportive of actual doctors. And it's a good way to, like BK said, to show the state of the world is what professions are going on. Or if you kind of want to take it a step further to see how things have progressed either from less to more or more to less as people who were writers or artists are struggling to do what they want to do or what they're good at because people can't pay for it anymore. Yeah, and in the same vein, real quick, when you have a more successful economy, then that's also when you get more specialization. So not just people being able to perform the arts and all the less vital pieces of a society, but also you get very specific jobs you know, if you are working on a, an assembly line, you can have somebody whose job it is just to do this one specific thing and then pass it on to the next person. Whereas in a society that isn't able to get as specific, uh, maybe one that isn't performing as well or doesn't have as high a population, the, then you would have that same person performing multiple different jobs. Yeah, and I was also going to say off of what Immaculate uh, said that um, that's a good way to show economic disparity also. Um, you, know, you can have an impoverished area and a wealthy area all in the same culture, even the same city, where you can show an area that's having economic hardships and then walk a mile down the road and have your artists and your you know, large homes and your nobility and whatnot. And that's a good way to show contrast between different levels of society, too. Uh, showing the contrast in Strata, especially for fantasy, uh, there is a phenomenal book. It is by Lisa J. Steele, and it's called Thief, A Look at Medieval Society from Its Lower Realms. It is a phenomenal book that just essentially breaks down like the high Middle Ages economy of France and what that meant for peasants in a complete and totally digestible way. It's under 100 pages. It's so worth the read if you are DMing, writing a fantasy novel, and you kind of want that realistic edge to things, and you just don't know what's keeping you from having it. Definitely gets to recommend because it teaches, it taught me a lot about the reality of it and what happened and showing the difference between strata poor and rich and how their lives actually went about it it really made a difference in both my writing and my gaming so for you guys with trades and occupations and talking about social strata do you feel like there are some say trades and occupations reliant wholly upon your essentially class, your upper or lower rung class? And how can you show that in world building? I think it just depends on your setting. 
and it depends on kind of what has been made accessible within a society. For example, in my setting, mages are considered this sort of elite profession, elite because they can either be scholars, they can serve in court to powerful political figures, they could be adventurers, but they're not really allowed to use their skills for general trade stuff. There's a kind of regulation of magic in my setting. However, magic is something that can occur to anyone of all ages. So kind of the regulating body for magic accepts anyone from whatever class, so long as they have that, that expressed um, aptitude for it. And they train them to fulfill one of these rare professions. It's also in large part about what you're around and born into. You know, you can kind of complain about it all you want, but we see this today as well, like who you know and what you are exposed to is hugely impactful with what jobs you're able to get, what things you're taught to do. And I think that applies to any setting for the most part as well. Even if magic comes to anyone, you know, the people who have access to training for it to, if you have to like have tests done to see if you can perform magic, then those people are going to be more prone to displaying magical talent. Yeah, that's why I think it's a lot easier to justify having masses of unskilled individuals that eventually might just become the massive labor force for like, um, not, I don't want to say menial labor, but they're considered in some cases to be bodies that can provide physical, their physicalities, that is their trade, is being able to move stuff around, being able to do these tasks that don't require years of training. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that I asked about, you know, social strata versus professions, and that really leads into what I was going to talk about was that, you know, historically speaking, and even in modern times, that, you know, most most jobs that need to be filled are manual labor. It's just basically like some moving stuff around, moving dirt around, agriculture, field workers, things like that. And, you know, as you go up in social strata, usually with that, the professions held by the upper echelons of the culture usually require more education and training. So, you know, above your manual laborers, you have your craftsmen, your blacksmiths, your potters, things like that. And as you go up, you know, your silversmith would be like an example of the next step up, then your scribe. The more education and training is required to perform a job, you know, the higher social standing you're going to have involved with that. Access to that training might depend on what social status you're born into. Like Adam mentioned, and, you know, if you're born the son of a farmer, you might be a farmer. That just might be your lot in life. You might not have any choice in the matter. Usually you required money to enter into service. Like you went into the clergy, you had to. Pay. You wanted to 
apprentice should pay. So it kind of makes sense that they would be a little locked, especially in a historical or fantasy situation. It's technically, you could argue that university is kind of the same way currently. Yeah, it's definitely the same way right now. Yeah, that brings us back to you know, whoever has the money has the power. I'm sensing uh, I had an over an overarching theme here. Um, <laughs> Government, economics, and professions—it definitely all ties together. Yep, especially when it comes to money. So, on the topic of money. In the current issue of Trades and Occupations, BK here has an amazing article called Blood for Money. And I think that there's pieces in there that you didn't get a chance to talk about there. Would you like to talk about them here? Uh, yeah, I can you know briefly talk about a few things that I planned to put in the article, but I didn't get to. We made him stop because it was too long. Yeah, I got a gag order. They, they put the leash on me and sort of... It wasn't a gag order. It was a chainsaw order. <laughs> but um yeah the, the the original idea was to start with you know as far back as i had to get or as i could get in ancient times and find a reference to somebody fighting for financial or personal gain and then go forward and i was going to go all the way up to modern times and talk about some sci-fi examples like everybody said it just got too long it was getting way too long to uh to go over all of it so I went from that ancient example up to kind of the advent of gunpowder and how that changed society and kind of changed the, the industrial revolution and changed the profession to more of a professional, organized profession. And that was a good place to cap it off because it was kind of like the, it showed the evolution of it coming from, in the beginning, it was kind of ad hoc and it was not organized at all, up to becoming something where there was actually merchants doing mercenaries there were you know uh we would call them managers or you know uh um agents you know that, that were trading in you know flesh for war going beyond that i was going to talk some about modern times because there's still you see mercenaries and you see security companies is what they call them a lot of times now but it's still basically even mercenary companies but providing security roles, which is a good segue into science fiction where, you know, you have your cyberpunk setting and you can have your, your mercenaries and your cyberpunk setting could be a security company where it's a, a, a privately funded military organization. And the last thing I really wanted to throw in there, but I didn't get a chance to, was my favorite example from science fiction of mercenaries is from the Battletech universe. Mercenaries feature very, very prominently in there from the board game, the source books, up to you know the latest video game that got put out by Hairbrain Schemes, the Battletech on PC. You're playing as a mercenary in that. That uh you know, mercenaries play a huge role in that. And, you know, the assets that they have are very difficult to acquire assets. And um, you know, it's it's really well fleshed out there. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Unfortunately I didn't get a chance to. But yeah, it basically modern times of science fiction is what got left out, unfortunately. But uh, I think the article does a good job of covering the evolution of the profession from its infancy to becoming something organized and respected among the world. 
I would have loved to see like a part two of it, just because once you get to modern times, it's not just looking at the profession itself, but also having to trace technological advancements. And that would get really, really bonkers, especially once you get into like futuristic sci-fi territory. For example, the profession itself would evolve along with technology just because people are good at finding ways to dispose of other people, apparently. And I can't help but think of, uh, for example, Shadowrun, both Shadowrunners as a profession, but also the setting and how that is sort of one way that mercenaries evolve when you're put into like a cyberpunk, uh, cyberpunk situation, for example. Oh yeah, definitely. And and you don't have to have, you know, like a whole army for mercenaries. Like BattleTech is a good example where you could just have, you know, a, a small number of people, and you like they they have these giant stompy robots, basically. And you might just have four giant stompy robots, and then your techs and engineers and stuff. Um, but it's just a small unit, or like with the shadow runners, you know, you just might be a free agent. You can have just one person and still be a mercenary. You don't have to have, you know, 300 people and say, yeah, I have mercenaries in my story. You just have one dude be a mercenary. Cell sword or a gun for hire is solid Exactly. And especially when you put in like technology, for example, in Shadowrun, there is a role called the Decker. And all he does is go into the Matrix. And the Matrix is essentially the internet, but turned into real life. Everything runs on wire, on the Matrix, on connection, connectivity. So guns, armor, uh, sentry turrets, vehicles can be hacked. Anything can be hacked. And so one Decker is essentially could be a full mercenary company if he manages to take control of an opposing squad's machinery and technology, because everyone's going to have technology. That's a really good example of somebody having um, like a, like an elite skill set, and that one individual being really valuable versus your thousand guys with muskets. I, I think for um, a follow-up article, if you ever have the impetus to do one, it'd be interesting to look at the political connotations and reactions and of of having mercenaries, such as, for instance, going back to like the Company of St. George taking Thessalonica to the Revolutionary War, where you have the air quote Hessians, all the German prince mercenaries who aided the British, and so on, going up to the modern day where you have mercenaries and being used in the recent war on terror. So I think that there's a lot more room to grow with it, and it already covers so much. It's an awesome topic that, oddly enough, it ties into everything we talked about today with governments, economics, and trades. Yeah, it absolutely does. I'd probably definitely be interested in writing a follow-up down the road. There's a couple things in the article that got touched on. You know, if um, anybody's read it, they'll they'll know what I'm talking about or if you haven't already I definitely you know would say you should like with uh, Carthage there's an example where they had a mercenary arm, army and at the end of uh, I believe it was the first Punic War they rebelled and there was this big mercenary rebellion that they had to put down and they almost lost Carthage to the mercenaries and there's other you know examples in history where 
you know, a mercenary company might go on to establish their own kingdom or something like that. So you can get a lot of, you know, huge ramifications other than just trading a service for rewards. Uh, you can have long lasting geopolitical ramifications to their presence too. The subject of geopolitics is an awesome one. Could be covered in the future. Just the idea of how do events relate to each other and how do people's opinions of those relate of those events then create new events. It's something that's probably very hard to keep in mind when world building. And it's one of those things where I like to say that world building can't really be done in a vacuum. You always want someone else to look at it and just kind of give an opinion and when it comes to like political events and government, that, that's one of the big times I like to get someone's uh, opinion on it. Or you could write it in a vacuum and have an economy that is hardly affected by the existence of magic and magical abilities. Like in a, uh, in a certain series that will not be named. Yes, just ignore the fact that magic exists. Make an economy however you want. Just abuse people who can just spread the power of creation to make fireballs. Governments can just crush them. And the final lesson here is mercenaries are always evil and never have a cause. Remember people, people are black and white and paper thin. Since when did we turn on terrible writing advice? I was just going to name that. <laughs> More seriously, don't take what I said seriously, please. Do what Dino says and don't write your world building in a vacuum because it might not make as much sense as you think it is. Have other people look at it. That's, that's always great advice. And that's what we're talking, I think, in part right now is to give people kind of that insight and the perspective. Yeah, perspective, definitely. Yeah. Different, different viewpoints. And you know, as far as, you know, world building elements in a vacuum too is to remember uh, going back to the geopolitical situation that everything's connected um, your economy your culture your religion everything's going to tie into each other so you can't just do one element at a time everything's going to feed into everything else it once again it's a it's a spiral that just continuously feeds itself all the way to the bottom and loops back up to the top it just never ends it's the circle of life all right well i think then i will take final comments though those were very final comment like <laughs> i think overall trades occupations economics all these things we've been talking about have kind of if it's not central to your plot then I tend to see these things get swept under the rug. And kind of like we mentioned before, don't do that. It's bad. Um, even if it's not central to what you're working on, it's good to have these things in the background so that you're secondary characters your settings these things can feel more alive and more realistic even in a very dead or unrealistic place yeah and building off of that you know i, I would kind of use the analogy again that you're building a foundation that 
you know, no matter how much you're planning on featuring it in your final product, be that a tabletop RPG or a book or whatever you're doing, that the economy and the government and your professions, you know, the, especially the economy and the government themselves, are building a foundation that you're building a culture on. And it's kind of everything runs off of that. It's how it runs and why it runs. And even if you're not going to feature that a lot, you need to know how that works so that as you start adding layers on top of it, there's a steady foundation to hold it up that everything makes sense. And the other key point I'd want to put in is reiterating what I said before is that it's all about people, especially when you're writing fiction, that you need to tie it back to people. The professions is a good way to do that. You know, not info dumping, not telling the reader this is the kind of government I have. This is what, how the economy is looking right now. Show it through the eyes of the people. You know, show, you know, how does the government affect the people? How does the economy affect the people? What kind of professions they have? What effects does this all have on their day-to-day life? It's a good way to show all these things to your audience. I absolutely love what BK said. People, people, people. No matter what I make or what media I consume, I tend to focus in on the people and anyone who is creating with the intent of showing it to an audience should keep that in mind. It's not just a way, it's not just a matter of connecting the people within your setting, but also finding that way to connect to the people you're presenting to. Professions do that, showing how someone lives their lives, whether in a rich society or a poor society, no matter their strata, is another way to do that. And just creating that sense of uh, that sense of relatability to your setting and to your people. I think to close it out, I just have to say that these are three concepts that are really hard to just glance at and feel like you have an absolute control over. And a lot of people are uneasy about them. And the best advice I think I can give is to just find something that interests you read a little bit about it and just don't stress it. This is one of those parts where like we talked about, it's kind of this framing device and it's not necessary to obsessively worry over it. I mean, it's not good to do that about anything, but in this particular sense, it's one of those things that it's okay to kind of slack on some of the greatest pieces of media have terrible terrible government economics and such and they're still loved it's okay to kind of let it take the back burner and in the words of rudyard kipling gold is for the mistress silver for the maid copper for the craftsman cunning at his trade good said the baron sitting in his hall but iron cold iron is master of them all thank you for listening You've been tuned into Worldcasting, an affiliate production of Worldbuilding Magazine. Have any feedback, comments, questions, or concerns? You can get in touch with us on our website, worldbuildingmagazine.com. There you can find links to our social media, or feel free to come chat with us on the Worldbuilding Magazine Discord server. Thanks for listening to Worldcasting, and until next week, keep worldbuilding. Building.